Welcome to RNFM Radio, Nursing Unleashed. We're your hosts, Kevin Ross and Keith Carlson, and we bring you inspiring interviews with a wide array of nursing experts, innovators, and entrepreneurs. We're glad you're here. So welcome and enjoy the show. Welcome to another episode of RNFM Radio on the Pulse of Nursing. We're here again. It is June 10th, Monday, of course, if you're with us live. This is, of course, our 66th episode, and you should know that if you were with us last week for our 65th episode. Without a doubt, this is a platform where we are always discussing the latest news, trends, and hot topics in the world of nursing and healthcare. Our dynamic guest list, both past and present, spans the whole spectrum from nurse authors, bloggers, speakers, filmmakers, and entrepreneurs. These definitely are the leaders and thought provokers in the industry. And of course, we're thrilled to be able to bring them to you right here with us on RNFM. Again, welcome. I'm Kevin Ross here in my studio in Colorado. It is a balmy 95 degrees. And of course, my fellow co-host, Keith Carlson from New Mexico, he might be uh, basking in some of that balmy weather. He's also here with us. Keith, how are you this evening? Hey, Kevin. It's Keith. Welcome, everyone. And I'm doing great. We actually are pretty warm here in Santa Fe, too, warm and dry, as usual. The two fires flanking the city are still burning. One is 60% contained and one is 40% contained. So the air is actually much better today than it was, say, four days ago. And my wife and I just returned two hours ago from four nights in your lovely state, Colorado. We are in Pagosa Springs at the Bluegrass Festival. So we're happy to be home and I'm happy to be on the show and welcome everyone to episode number 66. Well, that's fantastic. And that really does sound relaxing, Keith. And so I'm glad that you two got away. I'm so sorry that I missed that festival and of course missed an opportunity to be with the two of you, but I'm sure it was nice for just the two of you to get away. It was, and we met a lot of Coloradans. I actually met quite a few nurses, and we talked about nursing and burnout, and I met a couple nurses from Denver Hospital. So we had some great conversations, actually. So it was um, Good. it was professionally enlightening, and but mostly personally refreshing to get out of town and get up into Colorado. Well, that sounds fantastic, Keith, and glad you did get away. You're taking care of your own self-care needs just as you mentor each and every one of us uh, throughout your coaching career here, and you're taking your own advice and doing the same. So listen to Keith Carlson. He himself even takes the opportunity to take a time out and spend time with his loved ones and just, just be and be in the moment. Oh gosh, well, I'm I'm blushing. I'm I'm 
blushing in an audio kind of way, but thank you. <laughs> I can definitely hear the blushing uh, through the microphone, oh, yeah. so it's okay. You're heating up my ears on my headset, so I can feel the warmth. All right. Thanks, Kev. Well, of course, so if you're hanging out with us live tonight, you're on blogtalkradio.com forward slash rnfmradio, or you're on rnfmradio.com, where we actually have the player for all of our live shows and archive shows there, right up in the upper right-hand margin. Of course, we're still hanging out in Tweet Chat, so if you're hanging out at tweetchat.com forward slash room forward slash rnfmradio, or if you're using an aggregator, which I think you're still going to have to – I think you can still use tweetchat.com for the interim, but I don't know for how long. So if you're switching over to something like Hootsuite, um, then just go ahead and put in a hashtag rnfmradio, and we'll be throwing some comments and questions out there, and, of course, our community's hanging out there. You can always find us on iTunes at RNFM Radio. So that is under the podcast section and then under the search bar, just all in word, no spaces, no dots or anything, RNFM Radio, and you will, again, find all of our archived uh, shows there. Of course, you can also find us on ProMed Network at promednetwork.com forward slash RNFM Radio, and we are typically there a couple of hours after our show has aired each and every Monday evening uh, 9 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Usually a couple hours after that, we're on the homepage, and we appreciate that exposure. Of course, you can call in to 347-308-8064. Why would you call in? Well, you can call in to listen to the show, but you can also call in to speak to Keith or, uh, Keith or I. And, of course, the guests that we have on tonight to certainly add something to the show, question or comment, we always welcome that opportunity. So, and as always, we we will give you a roundup of those upcoming guests that we are, of course, excited each and every week to have here, and we'll discuss that at the end of our show. Thank you, Kevin. That's a great roundup, as usual. I appreciate that. And there are so many ways for you all to stay connected with us, and we do appreciate everyone who tweets, who joins us on Facebook, who checks us out and gets in touch we appreciate that so much. And you can always visit our Facebook page at RNFM Radio, um, facebook.com slash RNFM Radio. Now, in terms of our guest tonight, she and I have spoken several times and been in touch over the last few months. Her name is Lisa Sams. She's the owner and founder of Clinical Linkages Incorporated, a consultation and training company that assists organizations in achieving their goals for the use of evidence-based practice. She has more than 30 years of experience as a clinician, practicing in both clinical and academic settings, practice manager with an NICHD research project, and directing practice for a national association prior to starting her own business. She has authored both textbook chapters and journal articles and presented her work nationally. Her clinical work assessment blueprint, which is copywritten, has been presented at the American College of Healthcare Executives Congress, the Agency for Health Quality and Research Conference, Translating Research into Practice, and the American Organization of Nurse Executives. So Lisa has been around. Her new emphasis is engaging patients and families in best care through the use of evidence so that they can be proactive members of their care team. And the first tool is her guidebook called Your Hospital Care Expect the Best. 
internet and mobile applications of that tool are certainly on the horizon very shortly. She learned firsthand that change offers opportunity with 23 relocations in 29 years of her husband's Air Force career. She enjoys jogging, biking, Pilates, as well as a good book and experimenting with recipes. So Lisa Sams, a hearty welcome to RNFM Radio. Oh, thank you very much, Keith and Kevin. And first, I'd like to compliment both of you on starting RNFM Radio. I think it's a brilliant opportunity for nurses to become engaged and understand what individuals coming together with their respective talents and expertise can do and highlight the role of nursing in improving the lives for people through their various specialties. So thank you very much for inviting me. Thank you, Lisa. That's so kind. And I think we're both blushing now. Kevin, are you blushing? (laughs) I am. So my ears are warm because of your blushing, and then maybe our listeners as well because I'm blushing. So Mm. we do appreciate that, Lisa. Yeah, Um, we do. It's it's always a pleasure to have the guests on that we do. Um, And so it's, it's because of our community and our guests that our show still exists and is thriving. So we okay. certainly appreciate that each and every day. Yeah, thank you so much. So, um, Lisa, we know from your biography, which is incredibly impressive and quite a mouthful, and you've really been around in the clinical setting, nationally, academically, research. I mean, you've really done it all. And you've been a nurse executive, and now it seems like your focus has shifted to some extent, in terms of what you're doing now, to engaging patients and families. And I'm curious, just to start off, what brought you, uh, not around, but brought you to this place of moving from those other milieus Mm -hmm. into really wanting to engage patients and families? And where was that born? That's a wonderful question, Keith. Thank you. Um, It really came from the experience in working with clinical teams um, because through, as you said, my very eclectic and um, necessity-driven frequent opportunities, I learned a great deal about what we read about in our journals and probably many of the listeners' personal experiences, the variations that exist in care, even uh, related around um, specific ways we do something, how you start an IV or what you do with, you know, Foley's or that type of thing. And I was amazed by how different that could be based on um, individual clinician preference. So that grew over a period of time. And then when I... um, was working um, as the manager for practice for the Association of Women's Health and um, Obstetrical Nurses, I really became aware of the growing movement towards what does it mean to use best evidence to improve care, which takes us away from the perspective of ritual and routine, and this is the way we've always done it, to what does science really suggest is the best way to approach a certain procedure or the management of a particular problem. And I learned a great deal about that, and uh, it eventually became a bit of a passion in terms of, well, I think the work that we did at the association was important in terms of moving from sort of opinion-based pieces to more evidence-based 
tools for clinicians to use. But I'm more of a grassroots person, and so my focus was how do you really help busy bedside clinicians make this stuff work? Because we know that, um, you know, we still embarrassingly have this 17-year lag time, IOM statistic, from what best evidence suggests we should do around certain things such as central lines and managing uh, foleys and that type of thing to when we actually do consistently for all of our patients. And so it was uh, my quest to make something practical because I've been a clinical nurse specialist and I know how hard the work is but also the demands just organizationally to accomplish change. It's pretty fascinating when you start looking at work environments. So that's what was the basis of building the work assessment model. But as I've done that for a few years, I began realizing that there really is no way to help us effectively embrace sort of our patients and their families with the information that we're trying to incorporate into care. And that's when I, and I had actually for a long time wanted to create some kind of resource for patients and families so they would have an easier access to information. So that was the genesis of how do you create something that doesn't sound dry and academic and yet gives people a simple, easy-to-use tool that they can then partner with their care team to prevent medication errors, understand what to do to prevent falls, those kinds of things. So that was the genesis of the movement towards uh, the focus becoming um, the, cons- the consumer of care, but never in isolation um, from, you know, the idea is partnership with the care team. So, Lisa, what, you know, from a, a leadership role that you've had, uh what, in your opinion or an experience, just for our listeners' sake, why is it that we are so far behind? What are the obstacles that are in play that uh, basically, you know, we have these hurdles where we know what's best practice and, and we see this, right. uh, what, what's happening? And then, of course, going into your passion, of course, it seems to be the driving force here because, you know, as mm-hmm. entrepreneurs, we, you know, that passion needs right. to, to help fuel these grassroots efforts. Exactly. What, what are you doing to, to sort of um, uh, shrink that, that time frame down so that we are adopting these practices that need to be, quote unquote, well, best practice? I mean, I am a humble component of this concept of shrinking that timeline for 17 <laughs> years because many very, very talented people. Uh, have uh, you know are taking this on? I mean, it's one of the missions of the Institute for Healthcare Improvement, for example, and ARC certainly has been working on this for a long time. So, um, but what doesn't exist is easy to use. Sim- well, let me take that back. Specifically focused on hospital care, and the concept of travel guide appealed to me personally. Because, you know, if you go someplace that you've never been before and you sort of want to know the high points, you know, um, you know what are the n- um, natural um, forces that you might want to see there or the museums or, you know, where to stay, a restaurant, then you have at least an initial frame of reference. And that it was the genesis of the idea, why can't we take some of the, the 
essential information about things where if if patients or a family member or both know what it is that we're working to do and we give them tips on how they can, you know, partner with the team or that the team can use with them, then they become yet another check and balance in the system. So that's the passion that drove this. And part of that is I don't really personally believe that with all the pressures that are on acute care today and what's happening in um, 24-7 at the bedside, I don't believe we can do it ourselves, by ourselves. And that I think there's, because we don't necessarily have integrated infrastructures to make that easy, and <laughs> the data speaks for itself. I mean, we... You know, we with forgetting to take Foley's out alone, we infect almost five hundred thousand people a year because we don't that's, take them out in less than forty-eight hours. That's a huge number, Lisa. And I like that's what you a, said a few minutes ago. I'm sorry, you said something about making the patient and their family able to be part of that check and balance absolutely. in the hospital. Absolutely. Right. And so in terms of a Foley, so what would a family member do then or or a patient? What well, would they do example, in that? Well, what we tell them is, you know, what we what we know about this that, you know, it really should be used in a limited number of cases. And okay. that um if you don't fall in that category and 500,000 people do not fall in that category, then if it comes out in 48 hours, then you're much less likely to get an infection. In fact, there was a recent study from, um, I believe this one was in JAMA, where they had done a systematic review about this very issue. And this gets back to, I didn't finish answering your question, uh, Kevin, about Mm -hmm. the other part of the why. And interesting enough, the takeaway kernels from this review are it boils down to us. It's it's our work environment, and it's us. It's changing our behavior with this basic, basic piece of care. You know, we put them in because it's a habit. The person comes in through the emergency department or that type of thing, and we just don't take them out. Even with electronic frequent reminders and other things on the chart, we don't do it. And this is the embarrassing part of their review, is a lot of it falls right back on us, nurses. Because, you know, it it seems like another layer of work that we have to do because what are we going to do about toileting now? When in fact, exactly. Right. When in fact, the research shows you have more falls when you forget to take it out because of the irritation around the urethra, and mm. the patient feels an urge, and they get up anyway, and then they've got this bag in this tube, and they'll fall. Oh, so the nurses might and the medical team might be leaving the catheter in, for instance, because it's quote unquote convenient for them because they won't have to take the patient to the bed. Um, I want to insert one thing here, 
Lisa, that at your website, clinicallinkages.com, that's clinicallinkages.com, in the upper right-hand corner is the guide that you all might want to check out. It's called Your Hospital Care, Expect the Best, Guide One, Join Your Care Team. And Lisa was able to send me a copy, and unfortunately, Kevin doesn't have one right now. But I just wanted to point out that in the first section, it's all about knowing before you go what, how to choose a hospital, what happens in the emergency room. And then in the second section, it's joining the care team. It's really understanding what's happening during your stay and what you can do about it to make your stay better. And then it even covers very simple things like how do I prevent an infection? Why do I have a Foley catheter? And it's quite comprehensive. So I just want to make sure people know that this book exists and that they can order it directly from your website or from Amazon. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Sure. And would you like to say something specifically about the book, how it's organized and how it's being used around the country? Right. Well, the, um, the organization of it comes from, um, the methodology within the evidence world, if you speak. So the idea was that we would go after the evidence at the highest level of the pyramid that we was available on a particular time. Well, first of all, it was what are the big ticket items? If you're looking at hospital care, what are the areas where we've got some of the biggest issues um, all of Section 3, for a matter of fact, is um, basically NDNQI uh, monitoring um, measures, falls, pressure ulcers, pain. And um, the and so this have significant implications for not just care and a person's outcome, but operationally for the organization, as does the middle section. So... We went after the topics that most people are going to experience a good portion or some of these when they go to the hospital, even for outpatient procedures. You're going to have some of these things happen. So it's the general concepts in care. And then the idea was if you take the evidence related to a topic like catheters or IVs um, or falls, then you look at the evidence hierarchy and for the the best that exists, and then extract from the, that literature, and they're mostly um, evidence-based guidelines or systematic reviews, what are, what are the key elements that, so this, the, this is the sort of the clinical decision-making, where real-time a patient or a patient and family could realistically affect a difference. And uh, I'll go back to the catheter examples to explain that in a minute. And that the third component of this is this information needs to come in plain language. And that's a term that really, I think maybe it was the Cochrane Collaborative that started that term to begin with. Um, and certainly Lee, the Co- which is a great resource for the listeners. Um, the Cochrane Library is just at um, cochrane.org or um, the Cochrane Consumer Network, um, both of which do some very nice work and really are um, a way to get at best evidence around myriad 
topics, um, different types of medications, management of certain disease processes and whatnot. But the plain language summaries that the Cochrane Consumer Network are now making available, and you can join that. And it would be great if more nurses did that uh, because they'll ask for people, you know, for example, under the respiratory group, they're looking at something related to asthma. And they'll say, here is a draft um, plain language summary in this particular aspect of treating asthma. And they'll ask people to, you know, if you'd like to review this, let us know and uh, provide your feedback and it'll get incorporated. So it's really a wonderful mechanism to uh, bring people together around what science is suggesting at this point in time, which will always change, uh, you know, we know to be the best. So did that answer your question? Um, Yes, I think it did. I really do think I, I think it did. But I wanted to ask, I'm looking for Cochrane.org and can't find it, but oh. perhaps I'm spelling it wrong. What well, is the no, it may be I did that wrong. Let me, I have most everything just bookmarked, so I don't yeah, always. Yeah, I think Tara found it, didn't she? Oh, no. oh we, our Mark. intern found it, yes. Mm-hmm. She's going to tweet it out. It's it's Cochrane, C-O-C-H. R-A-N-E dot mm-hmm. org. So the Cochrane Collaboration. Okay. Mm-hmm. And yes, that did answer my question. Thank you. Okay. What would we do without Tara? Thank you, Tara, for finding that. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Tara. <laughs> well, you know, Lisa, it, it seems to make sense because we can easily get family buy-in when we include them, you know, in, in the plan yeah. of care. We yeah. were doing that. Uh, years ago at Hopkins, even in the uh, cardiothoracic ICU. Mm-hmm. Typically, ICUs are, you think of them as just walled up or like this fishbowl or aquarium or whatever. Like you see people in there, but you can't really go in there. Mm-hmm. And we welcome the opportunity to have families in there, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily shoving them out the door. Um, you know, they can only stay f- a few minutes at a time. We really embraced having families uh, on the unit and involved in rounds. Which and is so, so wonderful. Mm-hmm. Yeah, families who really wanted to know what was going on, they were welcome to stand there with us while we rounded on each, well, their their family member, so that they could know what was going on. And it was it was great because obviously we're getting buy-in from them to make sure that, okay, I know what's going to happen here. I, I got big picture stuff, but I also know the steps that it, that needs to happen to get there. And it was also really nice, too, from a communication standpoint, so that they could also kind of get on the phone and bring everybody else in that would be either involved in the care directly or indirectly or just a support system. Mm-hmm. So that And I would really imagine helped. that you learned a great deal from the family member or members that were there when they would talk about this person that you were caring for. Of course. For. Mm-hmm. Of course. When you – I mean, the the little – the intricacies – that each of us has, I mean, that that we uh, go through, you can learn so much, even from a clinical perspective, that is not in the clinic note that the surgeon didn't know or any of the docs or the nurses or any from the team. Mm-hmm. A family member might mention something in passing, and, mm-hmm. and a light bulb might go off and say, oh, that's why this is occurring, or we didn't know that. This really helps us with our plan of care. So we encourage, and I still encourage, I embrace families because they obviously have had their finger on the pulse of this family member for quite some time, mm-hmm. and they really do turn the lights on for us when it comes to providing that care. And it's, you know, Lisa, it's it's just a shame because you're 
basically sending a message here, or you're, you're telling us that we have created our own obstacles or we're putting up the, our obstacles as clinicians to have some buy-in to this best practice, but we've heard it so often. And even when we talk about the technology and embracing that technology to help us try to do our jobs a little bit better so that we can spend a little bit more time with our patients, but then the frustration sets in and we think, oh, it's going to take us longer or that doesn't work for me and I just want to go back to this way of doing things when we know that there are uh, wonderful outcomes by using certain technologies. And again, it's just the message seems to be clear that on, ser on several aspects here that we unfortunately are setting up our own roadblocks. Well, and, and let me clarify that point because you're you're correct. We are, and studies tell us that. But let me elaborate on that a little bit because I don't sure. want to leave anyone with the impression that it's because we just are too comfortable with what we're doing because the vast majority of nurses and physicians and pharmacists and people who show up at a hospital every day really come wanting to do the very best thing for their patients. And so what we have is organizational. I mean, we know all this. Every nurse knows this. Um, because the system pieces are not necessarily designed with the orientation to get to the outcomes that we want. There are many frustrations that people will experience during the day just trying to get some of their more simplistic things done with patients because the processes may not be very streamlined, let alone the integration of what is what is the best evidence around this particular problem. Yes, we have technology. There are a lot of tools out there. But I, the the focus on just what it means to provide care is is sort of built into the way we've been operating for a long time. But I don't think it's individual clinicians. I think it's more systemic than that. Mm -hmm. And it's why many nurses will will leave practice or go out and start their own business because... Sure the effort to try and get things to turn around uh, so that care can be offered in the way they want to do it is is just almost insurmountable in some situations. And that is the reality of where we are as an industry today. I think we have to put this in perspective. And the external driving forces are enormous. And when we look at, and they're growing, and they're going to become greater, and when we look at the um, the way the um, new regulations as they come out are are pressing us forward with discharge care, with this, and I have something I'll share with you: this concept of patient engagement and shared decision making. Um, terms that are used very loosely everywhere and and published in regulations. Um, they're driving decisions um, sort of from a uh, shoot from the hip approach in some cases because they're all attached to dollars. Mm. And, you know, HCAPS is the big example, but discharge care, readmission, those two things 
together and then married with what are your outcome measures mean as a hospital you're going to live or die by those numbers and there isn't a whole lot of lead time to make a lot of this happen so this is a hugely complex issue and people that have studied the work environment um, there is a team in um, University of London uh, Trish Greenlaw is her name and they have for several years been looking at the work environment and clinician and behavior, attempting to put some framework around what is it that makes it so hard. And if you, she's done a, a sorry, I don't have a citation in front of me. She's a, you can Google her. Um, she's published a great deal. Um, and um, but in her meta narrative review, which is about four years old now where they looked at a lot of the qualitative research around what does it mean to provide care in a hospital today or in a care environment today and how complex it is. It makes your eyes thin because you see all the components. So I just want to clarify, I don't think it's because people don't want to change. I think in many ways the forces that you are working against are so great. No, you're echoing the same thing that we were actually just talking about last week, Lisa, because and, – and I did want to clarify, and thank you for doing that for our audience because you're right. It's so fast-paced. The ratios are much higher. The stakes are higher. Folks are sicker. And I think part of it, you know, when maybe when we put those obstacles up, it's just, okay, well, I'm just – I'm doing this. I'm just – I'm in survival mode. This is what I know. This is what I feel exactly. comfortable with. So I just exactly. kind of want to do this for now. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're right. The system is not supportive, Mm-mm. supporting our nurses to be able to really embra- ba- embrace these best practice, uh, mm-hmm. you know, components here. So, and the I'm physicians as well. That. And see, I think that we, if we're really going to think about patient-centered care, we need to talk like we're an interdisciplinary team, mm-hmm. <laughs> and, which is something I've really. All through my career, you know, built some and stress because we each bring a unique perspective and talent to help guide the best outcome, and that may be a good death, you know, but the best outcome for our patients, and we can only do that if we are, you know, sharing information and and really working together at. What is this? And I want to read this one definition to you um, that I found recently as a physician. Um, and he blogs, and I forget how I came. Oh, no, this came under, um, if you're not familiar with Kevin M.D., he has some interesting oh, yes. yeah, yeah, guest bloggers on it. Well, this is uh, a Rob Lambert, and this particular blog he did was on patient engagement, and I actually doing something with that. I just came from the MedCity um, Engage conference, which was about patient engagement. And interestingly enough, it was really about how to use technology to engage patients. There was, even though there were a few clinicians, a few patients, it was a very tech-focused kind of conference. And those are great tools. But what does it really mean? And so that's doctor writes this blog about what is it and it's I'm not going to take our time here it's quite funny if anyone wants to read it but he makes a very good point in here um, having a discussion with um, his colleague 
um, about communication in healthcare and his, or in caring for a patient, and they were discussing what that word means. And um, he says um, communication is not important in healthcare. Communication is healthcare. Care is not a static thing. It is the transition uh, transaction of ideas. The patient tells me what is going on. I listen. I share my thoughts with the patient and other providers. And the patient uses the results of this transaction for their own benefit. And to me, that really said, that's the way we engage in shared decision-making. That's about risk and benefit and helping people understand because ultimately it's the person's choice. For many things that happen to them, and so this idea of engagement um, is a term that is much less clear um, than shared decision making. Shared decision making really does have a basis in ethics, and some in law. And um, Sackett, David Sackett, who was one of the early folks in the um, evidence-based practice world, uh, did a Venn diagram, and uh, probably 15 years ago, and this Venn diagram shows the integration of three components in order for this to work. And it's clinical expertise, so, you know, you as a nurse, you as a physician, that's never diminished. The clinical expertise is part of this. The evidence is part of this. And the third part of this is patient preference. And that is the component of shared decision-making. So it behooves mm. the clinician to be able to talk about what is the best evidence related to this. And for the patient or family members to share in this process and and be part of it. And that becomes really important in the area you're working with, Kevin, in terms of helping to keep people out of returns to the hospital, is in a plan of care. And, and the you know, it's becoming... Actually, the new CMS regs demand that um, the patient or their surrogate, if they can't do it themselves, be part of the design of the plan of care. Well, that sounds very important, Lisa. And we do have a caller we want to bring in here in a minute. But the question I wanted to make to ask, or actually it's a, it's a comment more, that we talk about patient engagement and shared decision-making, the physician, the nurse, the rest of the team and the patient and hopefully some of their family members or loved ones. Mm -hmm. But then one of my concerns as a nurse then, and I think some nurses out there might say, okay, well, but what about the pressures coming down from the administration Mm -hmm. on the physicians to make particular decisions? And even if the nurse feels that the physician is making a decision based on that sort of pressure, what happens then? How How does it really how can you create the shared part of decision-making when you have administrators passing down these notions of what should happen at a certain time? Does that make sense? Oh, I think you raise a salient point for where we are right now in the industry, and I think it's one that really needs to be much more openly examined and discussed than it is because this is going to be essential and it's an opportunity for nursing to move in there. And I think if I heard you correctly, you're saying 
So the physician may be experiencing pressures from administration to do certain things and is making a decision that the nurse at the bedside may say, "This is this really in the best interest of the patient? Then what is the nurse to do? Did I misunderstand you? Or No, you, you, you got it. And okay. I'm also I was also raising maybe a larger rhetorical question of and this is a whole other conversation probably about okay, so how do we as clinicians working with our patients and our our we could call them customers or consumers, mm-hmm. how do we navigate around these dictates that come down from on high that might not necessarily be the best clinical decisions? And I think our caller might actually have a question about how nurses actually can do that, how nurses can really bring EBP to bear. So would you mind if I bring her on and see how how that uh, focuses our conversation? That would be great. Let's see. So our caller is Beth. Um, Beth, are you there and can you hear us? I am. I am. Great. Well, thank you for calling in, and please ask any question or make any comment you like. Okay. Um, first thing I wanted to comment is that I I do have Lisa's um, guide, Your Hospital Care, and I would highly recommend anybody who's in, um, perhaps as a nurse practitioner or in the hospital or working as a patient advocate would get this book because it is a guide for our patients. And I think what I like about her book so much is, yes, it gives the evidence and it gives practical guides, but I think what it does more than anything else is give a voice to the patient and so they know the words to use when they get to the hospital because so many patients, you know, are maybe a little intimidated by if the doctor says this or the nurse says this, then I should just do it. But what happens here, it seems like, is this patient now has a voice. And I think, you know, I work in the educational field as well and and teach um, nursing students and really talk about involving the family and developing this plan of care. And and so I highly recommend the book. I just think it's excellent. The The, the question I have is how do we or what would – Lisa suggests, those of us who kind of are fired up about this and and wanting to get nurses excited about evidence-based practice, um, because I think sometimes it's sometimes white noise in the background because we have so much else to do and it's just one more thing, but w- what can we do, you know, for those of us who are in education or those of us maybe who are managers in hospitals, what can we do to inspire our nurses to to want to know more about evidence-based and then take that and and always and figure out a way to communicate that with their patients. That, that, I hope that sounds about right. It does. And first, uh, Beth, thank you very much for your kind words about the guide. I, I appreciate that. Um, and um, in response to your question about how do you get people fired up, um, Today, I think that's harder, <laughs> to be very honest. But I have always found that in the beginning, I mean, you have to, if you're going about, evidence-based practice isn't a general concept, and it needs to relate directly to whatever clinical area people are working in. And whether it be an oncology unit or a NICU or um, 
an ICU that, you know, how does it relate to me? You know, I'm working mm. 7P to 7A, and I'm in this, um, you know, a cardiac unit. And how does this relate to me? And so I think open-ended questions in the beginning are things like, um, this isn't how I would approach a project with the team because that always began with some information gathering from um, the managers and educators and people ahead of time to get their scope of what they saw as an issue because you do have to bring it down to specific mm-hmm. clinical practice targets. But in just talking to staff, it's, you know, what is it that the top three things that you love the most about what you do and what are the top three things that you would change about what you mm. could do? And, of course, you know in the top three it's going to be I'd like to have more time because every <laughs> study every study that's been done, time is either number one or two on the list. There's not enough time, and that is um, where the reality of today is. Um, but to find out, because oftentimes they will begin to peg this issue, and I've been fascinated in seeing staff, if you just say, what are the top three things you, you know, uh, like to do the most or feel that are done the best? That's really what mm-hmm. I meant to say. Or what are the three things you'd like to change? Mm-hmm. That question, they almost always will hit what has come from the people I have talked with before. Mm-hmm. So they'll begin to narrow it. So they'll tell you, you know, we're not doing good um, uh, management with sedation, these patients that are intubated, or we're not pain managing them with uh-huh. when they're intubated or something like that. They'll go after their hunch is usually in the ballpark, if not right there. And so they're emotionally sort of engaged in this in the mm-hmm. beginning, and it's not like, oh, this sounds like something really boring. Exactly. It's something that matters to exactly. Them. Exactly. And I like what you said. I like that, what would you change? And then what you said in the beginning was, well, how does it relate to me? And I think especially nurses in that clinical area, it's like, don't don't waste my time with this, this, and this. But if, you, if we're allowed to name something, mm-hmm. we probably would be a lot more motivated to hear how it relates to evidence-based practice. Or, you know, we'd be mm-hmm. probably open because we've raised it as an issue. So I hear what you're saying. That's a good point. Start start with them and ask them. Right. That's good. And I, I like think that. that's true for all clinicians exactly. because everyone is feeling the top-down pressure mm-hmm. today. Mm-hmm. And back to something Kevin raised a little while ago about these changes, and I'll connect this with the whole uh, discharge plan, the 30-day readmission issue, which is going to cost a lot of money you know, to people that this happens to, organizations. Cardiologists, and this was in something recently, uh, raised this issue. Um, I think it was an editorial in the Archives of Internal Medicine or JAMA, one or the other, um, raised this point because of the way the regulations are written, which I have a sheet that's nauseatingly boring, but it's the reality of where it is. Um, and it's immediate. As soon as it was released, it was immediate. But there is a, a, a there is a um, qualifying phrase in there about designating within the first 24 hours. If 
a patient looks like they are a candidate for hospice or palliative care and they are designated within 24 hours, then you will not get dinged if they're readmitted in in less than 30 days when you send them home. Now, this is a very interesting dynamic. And when you ask about that, and this would be the nurse and the the physician, when you raised this question earlier, Kevin, this is a great example because this cardiologist's editorial was about already they could see the pressure coming from administration that when you get the some of these folks in, and, you know, his example was great. He said, well, you know, this 82-year-old comes in, he's got some pneumonia and maybe a little type 2 diabetes and a little CHF, you know, but there isn't any reason to think this person is, you know, um, going to be dying anytime soon. But this new window, if you will, this wiggle room for an organization is pro- could have the potential. I won't say that, but he was he's very concerned, so he wrote this editorial, that it will drive this kind of need to press a patient and family member within 24 hours of admission, do you want to go into hospice or palliative care? And when I think back to my mother, had you asked her that, she would have said, I'm not going to die. Why am I going to want that? So I think we have a lot of opportunity in nursing to begin to take an example like this one. It's fairly dramatic, but Mm -hmm. it's probably going to happen. And begin to build these into most organizations today have to have practice councils and those kinds of things, or and they're they're term different in different organizations. But these are the engines that are charged with looking at um, outcomes and how are we making outcomes better. Mm-hmm. And that's where you take these kinds of incidents. So you, you raise these questions and you move them into the existing infrastructure. And they used to start wiggling at them instead of just feeling despondent, <laughs> which could be the case. Well, well no, that's, know, Lisa, that's really helpful. Well, and Lisa and Beth, I wanted to chime in here because you know, earlier on we were talking about the Affordable Care Act. I believe we were off the air uh, before that. There's a sense of urgency here. And yeah. there's a lot of discussion about health and wellness prevention and mm-hmm. of course, compliance with bounce backs and mm-hmm. uh, you know all all of the stuff that we know. Mm-hmm. And I mean, are these institutions, are these organizations? I mean, it's on our heels. It is coming. Oh, and yeah. what are they doing? I mean, are they are we really ready? Because we hear about this, but I don't. I quite frankly, in my opinion, I don't think there's enough um, out there that says we are ready. We have this to scale. We are ready to implement this. This is going to happen, and we can do this. Because I hear about all the things that are going to happen, all the good stuff. But then you also hear about primary care, um, you know, docs, really Mm -hmm. not necessarily getting phased out, but a lot of them are just going into specialty areas. And, of course, advanced practice nurses are having to kind of take a piece of that pie. But then there's a struggle there from a political Mm -hmm. standpoint, Mm -hmm. um, which is huge. And Mm -hmm. Like I said, it's globally this is there's a sense of urgency here. And I, yes. I just I I am hoping that these organizations are ready to flip the switch and doing enough 
to make sure that this is implemented. Because quite frankly, I think there are a lot of organizations that are just quite frankly running scared because oh, they need to be yeah. compliant because those Medicaid yeah. dollars are going to be gone, Medicare and Medicaid dollars if they're not. Yes, and there are estimates out there. LeapFrog's estimate is somewhere around 20% of hospitals will go down as mm. a result of this. So, uh, uh, yes, and the answer to there is – I attend many events in this area and hear a lot of speakers, and there isn't anyone who's sounding overly confident about any of this coming through easily. And the people who are having to do care coordination, who are having to see that discharge care gets put together and stuff, are, as you said, running scared. They're very worried about how this happens. And I don't know how um, the C-suite in a hospital today can possibly plan their budget because the regulations are being written as you go forward. I mean, the unknowns are enormous. This piece about the new 37-page document that came out about discharge care with all these little caveats in it, it came out in May. How do you plan when this – I mean, so as environments in which nursing is practicing, and it's always been um, (laughs) challenging and some days just bloody hard – that I, they're becoming more chaotic, and the messages are, I think, more um, confused because people are just reacting to a driver that's coming right now. Why are we seeing a decrease in central line infections, which we have in Provenost and all these people that have been on talk shows and everything talking about that? Those numbers are I've actually worked now. with Peter. He have you? A, I, we, oh, yes, he's a oh, wonderful, wonderful doc. Love, love him. you. Yeah, he's yes. a great spokesman for this. And started Yeah, he was uh, he was an intensivist at uh, Johns Hopkins at the time that I was there. Beautiful oh. man. I mean, I just I love the guy. <clears throat> Lucky you because uh, they started an institute there that's I think pretty impressive. Mm-hmm. Um the um but let's see. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm in the time <laughs> I didn't mean to get farther along in the 24-hour clock than you guys are. I just lost my train of thought. But um, the point about the uh, the readmissions and being able to um, plan a budget has been removed. And so to nurses, bedside nurses, to be able to recognize that their role is not diminished, it's actually increased in significance if you can connect to whatever infrastructure exists in your organization and be be vocal about it because I think this is a moment in time. We may not have a huge window in which we can really make a difference as a um, collaborative team in pulling patients and families in with us to actually turn this to a focus that what most of us went into practice for. Right. And speaking of that, Lisa, I just wanted to see if Beth, had anything to say from her practice side as a nurse. Yes. Um, is there anything else, Beth, that you feel we're missing, or is there a comment you want to insinuate here that you feel would be helpful at this point where we are in the conversation? Well, I, I think Lisa made a really good point, and that is nurses are interested in things that interest them. 
And so that, you, yes, you do something, you ask them to identify those three things and then make sure it relates to them. But I think the, the idea of doing a case presentation that relates to their unit is absolutely excellent, you know. And, um, yeah, no, I, I think she she's nailed it. And, that, and that's, I think if we do that and we use that also in our academic environments, mm-hmm. I think it's going to make... Um, a huge difference, and we just need to keep the talk going. So, thank you very much, Lisa. You, you've you've done an excellent job, and and I love the book. I think actually, I think hospitals should invest in your book so that when um, patients do pre-admission, that they get this book when they do pre-admission, and then we could just translate it into other languages. But I mean, seriously, it gives them a voice because that's part of our, I think, part of the whole, you know. Continuum here. It's it's got to include the patient. So if we have a guide for them and give them the words that they can say, so thank you I, I for your it. kind words. Well, and I that's actually the target market is hospitals. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> exactly. So thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Beth. Beth. Thanks so much for calling. Mm-hmm. Good Bye-bye. night. Well, there's a plug for you, Lisa, mm-hmm. uh, a nurse. Yes, exactly. And if there's any administrators out there, or actually nurses out there, or managers or supervisors, if you want to check this book out, go to clinicallinkages.com and take a look at it. You can see it on Amazon. You can buy it from the site. Just go, and it's in the upper right-hand corner of clinicallinkages.com. And I wanted to point out that Lisa is also on Facebook at facebook.com slash yourhospitalcare. So it's facebook.com slash your hospital care and on twitter she is at clinical link so please find her in those three places and send your administrators and managers over there so they can see the quality of the information that she's distributing and making available to all of us thank you so, ethan if i could sure, just add to what you said if there's anyone listening that would be interested in just discussing it to please just send me an email they can connect on the internet, um, or I am on LinkedIn, and um, as uh, Lisa Sam's uh, RNC. So you know, just you know, shoot me a message, and I'm happy to take calls, do informal consultations if people are attempting to get projects started, or um, you know, uh, how to go about making a translation work. Well, that's great. And also, I want to point out at the bottom of your website, there are social uh, links there. There's your YouTube channel, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. So at clinicallinkages.com, you can find all that information. So, Lisa, do you feel that there's room for you, that there's potential for um, book two in the series, guide number two? And how about languages? What do you think about getting this translated into more languages. Oh, that's absolutely something that I would like to do, always have wanted to do, plus, you know, um, working on perhaps even making this language more simplistic, even though we worked very hard for that um, to bring it down. Uh, It's still, um, you know, at a reading level, basically 7th and 8th grade. So... um, that piece, and interesting, I am talking with a couple of other people because discharge care is what I want to focus on next, and I'm thinking that may take a 
two separate versions, one that would look at discharge care related to uh, cardiac diagnoses and discharge care to long-term care, which presents, as Keith, you probably really know, a different set of challenges. So um, we are looking at that, and if there are any listeners that are interested in talking with me about that, if those are their areas of expertise, I'm very happy to arrange a phone call. Well, that's great. That's that's really helpful. And they can just email you from your website? Is that true? Yes, or just Lisa Sams at clinicallinkages.com. It's a mouthful. Great. (laughs) Okay. Uh, We'll ask Tara to put that up on Twitter, too, Lisa Sams at clinicallinkages.com. So, Kevin, did you have a a couple last questions as we wind down the hour? Mostly just, just comments. And, you know, Lisa, it's just it is a pleasure to, I think, be out here blazing the same trails that you are. Um, and of course, your your guide is something that I will personally uh, be looking into for my patients. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's true. This guidebook needs to be, it needs to get into the clinical space. So whatever we can do here at RNFM uh, to help put that message out there, that this is a, a tool that will help especially with the Affordable Care Act and compliance and, and everything here that, that needs to happen, the sense of urgency, uh, and to get some buy-in, I, I, I think your guidebook it would be a wonderful addition. And, of course, even for my practice, something to incorporate into that as well uh, part as part of our patient advocacy services. So I, it's just it's a pleasure. I told Keith we, we have this little side chat that we have here um, while we're on the air, and I could keep going. This has been a wonderful conversation this evening. Well, thank um, you. I've enjoyed talking with both of you as well. Well, we always say it's a it's a conversation around the virtual table, and some of them can just keep going and going and going. Obviously, for the sake of time, we can't, and, and you're, of course, uh, ahead of us, and mm-hmm. I'm sure quite tired. <laughs> but um, I certainly appreciate this opportunity uh, from a professional standpoint, just to know that you're out there, the guidebook is out there, and I'm going to help steer uh, along with you to get people to to engage in that and, and get that and buy that book. So, um, Thank you very much. Very kind. And Lisa, we'd like to keep in touch, and if you put out a second edition or you put out guidebook number two, we can have you back on the show to talk about that. And also, if you'd like to write a blog post for our blog at rnfmradio.com about the book or about what you're working on, please let us know. Just send it to us in a Word doc and we'll put it right up on our blog and make sure it gets really good coverage out there. Oh, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Sure. Our pleasure. So and it's been a delight to speak with both of you. And uh, oh. again, I think this concept of um, bringing uh, nurses together and sharing their talents um, is just essential right now. And we mm. need to continue to highlight this kind of opportunity. So um, as I meet other folks, I'm certainly going to pass on RNFM radio. Yes, please That's do. Or anyone you know who might be an interesting guest for our audience to connect with, please send them our way. I will do that. Okay. Well, and I hope to take our virtual relationship here um, to something in real life. I hope that we do cross paths uh, here in, in somewhat of the near future. So maybe I can be um, 
uh, involved in something that you're, you know, we might just happen to be at the same place speaking about very similar things. So mm-hmm. um, that would be great. This, and I might and, just be and, in Colorado. <laughs> right. Exactly. Great. Exactly. As you as you were talking about, so your right. your your soul, get, mm-hmm. finding your soul here. So mm-hmm. that would be a wonderful opportunity as well. If I'm up in the Summit County area, uh, mm-hmm. which isn't far from me, so that would be great. Yeah. Thank you so thank much. Thank you Lisa. both. And you okay. have a good evening. Thanks. Be well. Good night. Bye-bye. Oh, we forgot to wish her well with the storms that are over the D.C. and mid-Atlantic area right now, Kevin. So we hope, Lisa, if you're still listening, stay safe out there. And we hope the floods don't um, don't really impact anyone too severely in that whole area of the mid-Atlantic. Agreed, agreed. Yeah, because some of those, what she was talking about in Old Town, they're just so low. Even when the rains stop, the tides continue to rise. So, right. Uh, and and at times the levee does break. So that's right. That's, and you know the levee may break here in the healthcare system too. Just to draw a metaphor from one to the other, as the <laughs> healthcare reform comes to bear in 2014 and things really pick up. You know, we really hope that nurses will will carry some of these balls and help this move forward in a way that doesn't lose quality of care and doesn't lose what we really want for our patients and for ourselves in our workplaces too. So, you know, clinical linkages is one of those entities that's really working on that right now to get patients on board as consumers of healthcare. So we really do again encourage people to go to clinicallinkages.com and check them out, connect with Lisa on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter, etc. and order this book and get your hospitals to order it. And Kevin sounds like you might be interested in having this guide on hand for your patients and clients. Oh, I mean it's it's a wonderful resource. Again, I mean, I might be a wealth of knowledge because I've been doing this and, and I'm able to articulate this, but to have it in something tangible uh, for my patients, I mean, this would be wonderful for them. So I'm ex- I'm actually excited uh, to, to dive into uh, this book. So I'm, I am going to take the opportunity to, to grab one from Amazon, look through it, and, of course, pay it forward and, and hand it out to patients who, of course, right. obviously benefit from it. And, you know, Keith, you know, I, I'm often, you know, I, I use the terms of, you know, keeping your head on a swivel because, you know, these opportunities are everywhere. This is really an opportunity for nurses to start consulting uh, in these areas because, you know, as we were talking earlier in the show, that organizations are running scared and all they hear about is compliance and and non-compliance. Obviously, they're not getting reimbursed. Those dollars are going out the window or the doors and, businesses are going to be shutting down because of that. So what better way to um, take something like this guidebook and, of course, the passion uh, behind it to fuel this to help organizations with compliance? And there are small organizations that do not have the resources um, to to allocate to figuring out what it is that they need to do and how they're going to scale these, um, these services. They really don't. And I do know firsthand here in Colorado – there are smaller organizations that are hiring independent consultants to come in and shed a little light on what it is that they need to do so that when it's time that they are, in fact, compliant, but more importantly, providing the care 
that is needed, so desperately needed to a population that's coming on board here that is going to have quite a complexity, as we think, we assume, because of the lack of um, follow-up and continuity of care and insurance, quite frankly. So, right. This again is an but opportunity Kevin, for, for nurses. If, to buy if a in. nurse wanted to, right? If a nurse wanted to get in there on this as an entrepreneur, wouldn't what would a nurse need under his or her belt to be able to position themselves as we would say, you know, an expert in this area? Well, I mean, I, I definitely think you have to school yourself a little bit, and of course, uh, the political aspects, some policy. Some of the, the nurse leaders out there, and when I say leaders, I mean, I think, you know, we are all leaders in some right, but those that are in the management roles or administration roles, they certainly could branch out and, and consult and bring in that, that piece. But that's not necessarily, I don't think that's necessarily a requirement because we at the bedside, we have our fingers on the pulse of, of the patient and then, of course, the organization itself, and we know what's working. And I think, yes, for me, I have experience knowing what the Medicaid rules and regs are when it comes to the patient populations that I serve. Mm -hmm. But, again, you can look at the legalese. You can look at the print. I mean, anybody can educate themselves about it. But where I think the biggest obstacles lie is, okay, how do we implement this? How, do we, how is this scalable? Because, quite frankly, it just seems overwhelming that, okay, these things need to happen. But I think nurses who are doing it day in and day out are able to go to organizations who might not necessarily um, – they, they just need another opinion or they need several opinions on how they can do this better or be compliant and or compliant with their practices. Um, oh, I see. Okay. It, and, and it's as simple, to be honest, Keith. I mean there are smaller – I'm not talking about necessarily the larger organizations who have the bandwidth available and the resources to allocate uh -huh. to some of these. You know, They can just hire these experts to come in full-time to scale something on a much larger scale. But there are these pocket entities, um, private practices, smaller clinics, um, residential programs that we work with under the Medicare and Medicaid uh, umbrellas that provide services to people that are um, physically or developmentally disabled. And I so there are, yeah, so you can do it on that scale and, uh, of course, work directly with patients uh, in smaller groups, just kind of get involved with these organizations, these advocacy groups. We have them here locally where uh, people come to speak and, and let patients know, okay, this is what to, ex this is what to expect. Right, or right. think about your employer um, providing health insurance. They don't know where to go. Premiums are going to be skyrocketing, so they don't exactly know what to do next when it comes to re-up those premiums. So they need healthcare professionals to come in to kind of shed a little bit more light from a human resources standpoint because HR basically just picks a package that is, you know, they're trying to make their employees happy so that they have coverage, but at the same time, it can be so, you know, financially um, crippling to smaller businesses because these these premiums are skyrocketing and, and they just don't know what direction to go in. I see. Um, well, that's a good point. Happy. I think I said a mouthful, and totally a, a huge yeah, you, mouthful. Yeah, you I did. It was that. great. And, and you know, you mentioned working with patients and something I keep telling nurses out there, and we will have a guest on in a couple months who will be talking specifically about this, is 
you have what we're now calling, I guess, the sandwich generation. It's the people who are middle-aged, slightly older, who have elderly parents who really need them to lean in in terms of caring for them. And I've been telling a lot of nurses that this is a place you can leverage your expertise to, to educate this these middle-aged baby boomer um, um, healthcare consumers whose parents are now 80s and 90s and maybe even older, who may need help navigating the whole healthcare system. And when healthcare reform hits next year, who knows what that's going to look like for them. So I've been encouraging people to look at that quote-unquote market in terms of how to leverage nursing experience in that way. Well, and from a prevention and a wellness standpoint, and then obviously from a you know, bounce-back rate standpoint, hospitals, again, are trying to gear themselves or set themselves up to have liaisons, advocates, folks that can provide that continuity of care. But, but to be honest, Keith, and this is just my opinion, but I think independent consultants, partnering with these organizations, they, can, they are, I think, are more agile and better able to provide those supports than saying that the system itself has this uh, wellness and compliance program within the organization. Because once that mm. patient leaves, I think it's very challenging for the umbrella to keep that patient sort of un- under that umbrella without someone there to do a little bit of hand-holding to be accessible, to not say, okay, we have to come back to this big walled-up institution so that we can address this, but rather have people in the community. We've talked about it several times, community-based care and have nurses out there hotspotting and helping these patients, the eyes and ears and the communication and bridging all of those gaps. So that's really a a huge consulting piece here that nurses can get involved in, quite frankly. At whatever level you are as a clinician, I think you're you're equipped to do that. Sure, and we'll talk about that more on the show because I think as next year looms on the horizon, more and more nurses might want to, maybe we don't want everyone to leave the bedside, but those who do, we want to help nurture people to move in the directions where they can leverage their skills, make a decent living, and really make a difference in this Well, we give them new, an option, Keith. Yes, right. It's a great in the sense, like if, if they're leaving the bedside, if nurses are leaving the bedside, then where are they going? Are they going into other industries altogether and leaving nursing behind? Right. This is definitely a way we can keep them in nursing and, as Lisa, the passion behind that, the driving force to make this work. But right. And the system and we has want to nurses. hear it. Right. And we want nurses to use their skills. I mean, we have. I have nothing against people who really want to leave healthcare altogether. But if your passion is still there, but you just want to leave the bedside, there are a lot of opportunities. So talk to us. We have a lot of ideas. <laughs> we, can, yeah. we can keep sending them, sending you in that direction if you want a little advice from us. So just keep listening to the show. And Kevin, it's about quarter after the hour. Speaking of continuing to listen to the show, do you want me to talk about what's happening these next few weeks? We have a couple of things coming up, don't we? Oh, yeah, we always have something coming up. Now, (laughs) next week on the 17th, one week from tonight, we have Susan Strauss, and she's an expert on harassment and bullying. I know we had Renee Thompson on several weeks ago, 
and she talks about nurse-to-nurse bullying. But Susan Strauss talks about physician-to-nurse and also some gender issues involved in those. And you may be surprised about some of the things she has to say about how gender affects bullying on either side of either receiving or giving bullying or, or I don't know how you call it, uh, administering. You know, you don't administer bullying. What do you do, Kevin? You just bully, I guess. You harass your your coworkers. Yeah, yeah, I guess you don't administer it or infuse it. No, you don't administer Uh, it. Yeah, maybe you practice it. There's people out there practicing bullying, and we have to get those people offline, don't we? Anyway, um, I digress. Uh, Susan Strauss will be talking about harassment and bullying, and we're very excited that on the 24th, two weeks from tonight, we will have Enid Shomer. She is a non-nurse. She is not a medical clinician of any sort, but she's an author. She mostly writes fiction, and she has written her first novel, which is called The Twelve Rooms of the Nile. And it is a fictional account of the meeting of our own Florence Nightingale as a 19- or 20-year-old on the Nile in Egypt at that time with the writer Gustave Flaubert and we actually have evidence that they may have been on the same boat at a certain point but there's no evidence that they actually met and this book is I have to say amazing there's a review on uh, my blog Digital Doorway and we'll have a blog post from Enid Shomer about a week or week and a half before her appearance so we have a very intriguing blog post about from her for rnfmradio.com. Now, on the 1st, it is the holiday weekend, right around July 4th. We will not have a live show on July 1st. On the 8th of July, we will have an LPN roundtable. We haven't really given a lot of attention to LPNs these last months of RNFM Radio, so we will have several LPNs, um, administrators and practicing LPNs on the show to talk about LPNs, their scope of practice, and where that segment of the nursing population is at historically right now. So those are the next four weeks, and we really hope you'll join us. And Kevin, anything to add about those upcoming shows? I don't think so. I mean, as always, uh, it's just an exciting time here at RNFM because of our guests that are interested and, of course, our community that helps also promote the show that we just have these wonderful shows and we owe it to them. So exciting, exciting. And I'm, I am excited definitely to hear about the, the gender differences when it comes to the bullying. Um, but, but obviously welcoming, welcoming our LPNs because you're right. We haven't yet had, uh, I believe any LPNs on the show. So that's right. We're going to change that. Yeah, we're going to change that in just a few weeks. Now, Kevin, I'm going to do a little uh, shameless promotion here, and it's not self-promotion, but can I talk a little bit about my wife Mary Reeves' new book that just came out last week? You can, and I can tell you that my copy just showed up today. No way. That I, I ordered it from Amazon. I did. You did. Oh, you were so kind, Kevin. Well, I'd like everyone to know that my wife, Mary Reeves, who you can find on Twitter, at Mary Reeves, and it's R-I-V as in Victor E-S, looks like Rives. You can find her on Twitter there. And the book is called Journey to Joy. It's been published by Powerful You Publishing. It is a very wonderful, small, woman-based and woman-powered publishing company. And Mary, along with 34 other authors, have offered stories here of their journeys to joy, basically stories of success 
and courage coming from trauma or some difficulty in life and bringing that forward and sharing the process of how they got from a place of difficulty or challenge in their lives to a place of joy. And there are 35 wonderful stories. I'm, of course, partial to my wife's story, which does to some extent involve an event that affected me in my life as well around 11 years ago and the process that she and we all went through after this particular trauma occurred in our lives. So you'll learn something about me by reading Mary's story. And there are lots of free gifts with the book when you order it directly from my wife's website, which is thriveandshine.com. That's again, it's www.thriveandshine.com. Go to the shop. You can order it from there. There's a wonderful collection of tools that you can download as a gift once you order it from Mary. And there's some incredible stories and tools for really just taking your life to the next level. So that's a real plug for the book. I think it's wonderful. It hit number one in two different categories on Amazon on the first day of sales. So, Kevin, thank you for um, for contributing to it hitting number one. Well, of course, and you know, thank Mary uh, because yeah, I saw that out. She sent something out on Google Plus and I believe she Facebook, did. so that alert went out into my feed, and I found that and immediately ordered that. And you know, what was interesting is that I guess Amazon didn't think that it was me that ordered it because it was addressed to Katie. That's interesting. Yes, I thought it was because I said. I don't think Katie ordered anything from Amazon. And I said, oh, I bet you it's the book. And sure enough, I opened it up, and it was. It was the book. So as if I didn't have any interest in reading the book, but I do. So that's why I purchased it. So I'm glad to be contributing to that number one status there on Amazon. Oh, that's great. Um, Yeah, and I just wanted to point out that, again, if you go to thriveandshine.com, you can order it from Mary's shop. You can find her also at facebook.com slash thriveandshinecoaching. So Mary is out there, and she's my wife. She's a wonderful person, and she's really done a great job on this story. I'm so proud of her. And Tara, our wonderful intern, who I also want to mention, will be tweeting all of that information out very shortly. So, Kevin, I'm going to close off here and say goodnight and let you take us home. I'll just say thank you to everyone. Thank you to Lisa Sams of Clinical Linkages for being on the show and gracing us with her presence and her knowledge. Thanks to Tara. Thanks to you, Kevin. And you can find us at rnfmradio.com on Facebook and Twitter, and you can always find me at nursekeith.com and all my social media platforms. So have a wonderful week. Much love and and compassion to everyone out there in the Mid-Atlantic who are dealing with the floods and storms and tornado warnings. And my best to you, Kevin, and we'll talk soon. Sounds good, Keith. Always a pleasure to be here with you, sir. And of course, Tara, thank you. You do rock uh, as an intern. And Lisa, thanks so much for being on the show. As always, we do want to thank you for spending your time with us live tonight or whatever day you happen to be listening to our show archived. RNFM Radio is working hard to bring you valuable content while creating a global exchange among nurses and other clinicians. It's been pretty powerful information uh, tonight, so we hope that in some way you felt uplifted, motivated, and ready for something that moves the needle for you. Find passion in your life and also with everything you create each and every day. Care for yourself while caring for others, and we look forward to having you back here with us again 
on RNFM Radio.